well, probably two or three times a year, somebody contacts me in their search for a church home, and it often uh, goes something like this. We're moving into your community, so please answer some questions so we know if your church is right for us. And their approach is, we don't want to waste any of our valuable time looking at your website or watching any of those services you have online or certainly not visiting. But we need to know if you measure up to what we think a church should be. Give some good answers and we'll bless you with our presence. Now usually that question comes via email, sometimes phone call. Back in the, in the old days uh, came snail mail, and I got a big envelope one time in the mail. It had pages of questions. I mean, I, I can't begin to remember all of them, but they were, some of them were like, which version of the Bible do you use? What kind of music do you play? Do you teach a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church, or do you hold some other wrong view? <laughs> so pages of this stuff. And I wrote back and I said, I don't think you'd like it here. <laughs> but many, many times what people are looking for in a church is based on what they grew up in or what they're familiar with. And so that's what they gauge uh, the goodness of a church about. So an interdenominational church like ours that blends many different Christian traditions is, is going to end up doing some things that not everybody likes. So everybody's got a little bit unhappy, I guess, <laughs> as well as happy. So, so people ask questions even here, you know, why don't you give an altar call every Sunday? Why isn't there more liturgy? Why do we say the Apostles' Creed? Why don't you wear a robe? Why don't you wear an Hawaiian shirt? Why do we have that style of music? Why do you use that version of the Lord's Prayer? Why isn't there a bulletin? So all the questions like that, but hundreds of them, and all basically irrelevant to what it means to be a good church. Now today we're going to dive into what should be true of a church we start a series on the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica, the city there. And Paul went to Thessalonica to share the message of Jesus, and many believed and a church was formed. But one night a mob tried to kill Paul, so he escaped, and he left behind this group of new Christians. Not of concern for the, this young church, Paul sent his co-worker, Timothy, to find out how they were doing. And Timothy reported back that the church was growing, but it was under a lot of pressure. There were some moral problems in the church and some confusion about the return of Christ. And so Paul wrote this letter of encouragement, which we call 1 Thessalonians. One of the oldest books of the New Testament, uh, written 20 years after the resurrection, less than, and every single chapter mentions the return of Jesus. It includes some of the most detailed teaching about the return of Christ that we have. And that's why I called this series Anticipating Christ's Return. Now, chapter one that we're going to deal with this morning answers three questions about the church. And here they are. What characterizes a good church? 
Who is the church? Like, who's in it? And three, what does the church do? Now, some of this is foundational, and other parts of it are transformational. So I hope that you not, don't miss it at all. So let's deal with each of these questions. First of all, what characterizes a good church? Paul starts out being thankful for these people. He says, verse 2, we always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So faith, hope, and love characterize this church. And these aren't abstract feelings. They're faith, hope, and love produced something. Now, these are the three characteristics that I want to point out to you about a good church. First of all, a good church is motivated by faith to do good. If a church believes the right things, but doesn't put that faith into action, it's unhealthy. It's a sick church. If a church has people doing good things, but they're doing it out of guilt or out of fear or out of trying to get God to bless them, that's unhealthy. Sick. A real church does good works because of their faith. What is meant by faith here? Well, faith is the acceptance of the gospel message. It is fundamental trust in Christ, the perfect Son of God, whose death and resurrection provides the way to God the Father for all who believe. Now, it's because of that faith that the church in Thessalonica does good works. That's why a good church does good things. You're not serving to win God's favor because you already have his favor in Christ. You're already blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, Just consider some of the good things, just a few of them done at the worship place. People who make coffee and cookies. Some of my favorite people in the world, by the way. (laughs) Those who help disaster victims, who usher, who greet, who, who serve on committees who provide transportation for folks, who faithfully pray, who visit the sick, who stock the soup kitchen, who serve as guardians, who deliver meals, who facilitate small groups, who teach Bible studies, who assist with funerals, who care for the hurting, and on and on and on. Lots of good things. And any of those good things, good works, done only out of guilt or obligation, aren't going to bring much joy at all. And they're not going to last very long either. They'll wear you out. But those done because of faith in Jesus will be an enduring delight. That's what a good church does. Second, a good church labors in love to the point of weariness. Now the love the Thessalonians had wasn't just a feeling. It labored. The Greek word Paul uses, labor, kopos, is, is a word that's stronger than the word for work. This is... Kopos refers to self-sacrifice to the point of difficulty, to the point of weariness. Now, when do you give that kind of effort? What causes you to work that hard? Love. Love for your family causes you to get up and go to work every day. Love for your family causes you to clean the house and take care of sick kids, a sick spouse, make meals, whatever it is. Only love is powerful enough to make you toil. Toil. When you love people, it motivates you to labor for them and with them. A good church is where, even though the people aren't biologically related to one another, you labor over them out of love. 
And that happens when you care for the people who are easy to love and when you care for those who are downright difficult and some days impossible to love. It takes effort to be gentle when people grate on your nerves. It takes effort to be firm when they act out sinfully. It takes effort to be calm when they're exasperating. It's laborious to interact with those who are vulnerable and needy and treat them with love. That's what a good church does, though. Third, a good church confidently expects Christ's victorious return. This is what keeps you going. This is how you survive in the struggle and you persist in the face of trials. Hope founded in the risen Jesus coming back from heaven. That hope of the church is not that we're going to make the world a better place and solve all its greatest problems. If that was our hope, we'd live in constant discouragement because sin and trouble abound. And our greatest work as a church won't heal all the problems of even our community. But when our hope is founded ultimately in the fact that one day God will set things right, we will endure in that hope. We'll keep going. A good church realizes that none of our labor is in vain as long as our hope is on the returning Christ who will rid the world of evil and set up his glorious kingdom. Reverend uh, Greta Vosper is the pastor of West Hill United Church in Toronto. It's a church that wasn't very far at all from the church I served in Toronto for 10 years. Well, Greta came out as an atheist 10 years ago. The denomination, the United Church of Canada, investigated and said this, quote, In our opinion, she is not suitable to continue in ordained ministry because she does not believe in God, Jesus Christ, or the Holy Spirit, unquote. Pretty good reasoning, I thought. <laughs> Despite that, Vosper continues to lead West Hill United to this day, 10 years later. I'm sure they're lovely people, but that isn't a church. It's not a church. They talk a lot about faith and love, but it's not based on the hope of Jesus. Well, who is the church? Who's in it? Paul gives three markers of who makes up the church. Three different ways in which he expresses who is the church. First of all, the ones chosen by God. He says, verse 4, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. See, salvation begins with God's choice of us. That's where it begins. God chose his people out of love. He loved us not because we're lovable. He loved us not because we deserve it. By grace through faith. He chose, the Bible says. And because he chose, you responded. And this protects us from thinking that salvation depends on our human effort and actions and feelings. This protects us from thinking that our salvation is kept and preserved by our actions and feelings. It's out of God's love. Do you remember what it felt like to hear the words, I love you, from somebody the first time? What a thrill. Now, maybe somebody said it and it didn't stick. But what about those where it did stick? I'm blessed to have a wife and two daughters who love me. Grandchildren love me as long as I keep giving them stuff. But it's thrilling. As great as that is to have that love expressed, how much greater to know that you are the object of God's affection? That the creator of the universe loves you. If you've put your trust in Jesus, God has chosen you. And if you love God, it's because God loved you first. That's 1 John 4, 19. 
I'm not making it up. God loved you first. So the church consists of those God has loved and chosen. Who else is the church? Well, the ones who receive the gospel with power. Verse 5, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Let me tell you straight up, you are not a Christian unless you understand and receive the gospel. I don't care what else you do. You're not a Christian if you don't receive that gift that God offers. And I'm constantly amazed when I talk to people who who claim to be Christians for decades and, and are unable to explain the gospel. Salvation is unleashed in the story of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of God's promise from the beginning of time. The eternal Son of God entered our world, becoming human, like us in every way, except without sin. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, that gospel story includes Jesus' death for our sins, his burial, according to the Scripture, his resurrection on the third day, and his appearance to more than 500 witnesses. This gospel is a life-changing story. It reshapes us. And Paul says, we know you received this gospel because you just didn't hear the words. God's power was present. The Holy Spirit was evident. And you were deeply affected. So Paul was confident these folks were part of the church because of how they responded to the message. The word power he uses here, is the, the Greek word is dunamis. So the gospel wasn't just information to them. It came to them with explosive force, dynamic force. How do you know you're a Christian? The gospel is not just words with which you agree. The message has become power in your life. It changes everything. That brings us to the third mark of who's in the church. That's the ones who model the message. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, so that you became an example to all the believers. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So the, the, the lives of the f- folks in Thessalonica were becoming more and more like the apostles, more and more like Jesus himself, so much so that other people noticed. They became an example, Paul says. The Greek word is tupos, which, which is a stamped imprint, uh, an exact rep- reproduction or impression left by a, a piece of metal pressed into clay. That's how much they resembled Jesus. So by their attitudes, by their actions, they displayed the truth of the gospel. And the power of that gospel so changed them that they modeled the message to to their city and beyond. I love that E.V. Hill used to tell the story of when he became pastor to Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles. And E.V. set this goal that he would have a, a Christian block captain for every block of the city. And the church embraced this, and eventually they established a a Christian presence in almost the 2,000 blocks of South Central Los Angeles. In fact, church people were so committed to this, they would move into a block just so that they could represent the gospel there. Now, we want to do that to every neighborhood in Sun City. A whole lot easier than South Central Los Angeles, let me tell you. But we want to represent Jesus. We want to have disciples in every neighborhood so that we can reach 3,000 disciples with the gospel of Jesus. That's what E.V.'s church was doing, and he told about one man who did not enjoy living in a neighborhood that had a Mount Zion block captain. She was friendly enough, but she was always doing stuff like inviting them to church, and he had enough. He decided he'd move to the other side of the city. The truck came. He loaded up his possessions. His block captain came out to say goodbye. Sorry to see you go. Where are you moving to? We wish you all the best. The truck started off. As soon as it pulled around the corner, 
The block captain went into her house, got out the directory of Mount Zion block captains. <laughs> found the person in charge of the block to which her neighbor was moving. <laughs> and when the man drove into the new neighborhood with the moving truck, who was waiting for him but the new block captain? <laughs> the captain said, Welcome to the neighborhood. We'd love to have you join us at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. The man said, oh, no, they're everywhere. But real churches, they have a contagious enthusiasm for the gospel of Jesus. Whatever good things a church may do, if it's not communicating the message of Christ, it's not a true church. A church is a collection of people loved and chosen by God who have received the gospel with power and who model the message. So that brings us to the last question. What does the church do? What does the church do? I don't want you to miss this. Because here's the report of, that, that Paul got. You know, he wanted to find out how they were doing. This is the report he got back about what the church was doing, how, how it was doing. Verse 9. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, I want you to note two foundational truths about a church. Here's what a church does. First of all, the church serves God, not idols. You say, well, that's not a big deal. Now, when we hear the word idol, we often think of a statue that people worship. And so you might assume Paul is talking about, to these folks about how they, well, they didn't bow down to, to stone figurines anymore or fertility goddesses. But that is not what he's talking about. You know how we know this? The Christians in Thessalonica did not come from that background. The scriptures tell us that. Acts 17.4 says all these folks were Jews or they were God-fearing Greeks before they turned to Christ. And Jews did not bow down to statues. Not anymore. That changed a long time before. And God-fearing Greeks, they didn't do it either. That's who all these folks were. The Greeks already feared God. They don't bow to statues. So what idols was Paul talking about? A number of scholars, including Howard I. Marshall and John Stott, helped me to see this. An idol is whatever I'm hoping will rescue me. Everybody has a sense of condemnation in them. We all have this inner voice that tells us we don't measure up, that something's wrong, that, that we have to prove ourselves. And for some, that voice is louder because of the family we grew up in, because that family told us we didn't measure up or we had to prove ourselves. And so that voice is a lot stronger if you have that kind of background. But we all have it. We're born with it. And so we look for someone or something to rescue us from that. Whatever it is, whatever you look to for rescue, you serve it. And so you look for rescue in a career or in a relationship or in family or in nationalism or in a position of power or success or money or morality or immorality. That is being really good or being really bad. Wherever you look for rescue from that self-condemnation, from that sense of worthlessness, that becomes your idol. And so you're either a slave to your self-salvation or you're a slave to God. 
That's what the word, when Paul talks about serve, that's the word serve. It's, it's slavery. It's utter devotion. It's recognition of who owns you. A Christian is one who receives the gospel and turns away from the idolatry of self-salvation projects to serve the living God. Second, what does the church do? It waits for the rescuing Jesus. It serves God, not idols, but it waits for the rescuing Jesus. That's verse 10. See, everybody is looking for rescue in some sense. To a greater or lesser degree, we all have this fairy tale syndrome that's playing in our heads, and Disney does not help with that. Now, this won't fit all of you. I'll just give you a little example. It's not going to fit all of you. Women might be looking for that handsome prince who awakens you from sleeping death, who liberates you from the locked tower, who rescues you from the evil witch. Men might be waiting for the beauty who looks beyond your beastliness, the princess who sees more than the frog you are, who looks past the mess and loves you in spite of it, who kisses away your ugliness. We're all hoping for rescue from a sense of lostness, worthlessness, hopelessness, sinfulness. And whatever or whoever it is that you turn to for that rescue, that's who you serve. That's who you worship. And it will ultimately fail you. Because when the, the prince or the princess dies or leaves, you've lost it. When the job ends, when the money runs out, when your health fails, it's over and you have nothing to wait for. The gospel says you have someone to wait for. Jesus, the ultimate rescuer. See, while you were still lost in sin, Christ died. He went to the cross bearing your shame and died the death you should have died. And so the call is to turn from your false saviors and your flawed rescuers and worship the living God. Because a real church serves and waits for the rescuing Jesus. That really sums it up for what we're to be about. A true church is all about serving and waiting. Both of those terms are in the present continuous sense. That's what we do. That's what we're called to do until the day our life ends, until Jesus comes back. Serve and wait. And if you don't serve and wait, you know what you're going to do? You're going to fall back into looking for a false savior. You're going to fall back and bowing to a false idol. Because if you're not engaged in the mission of the church, that should concern you. Dr. John Stott said, if you aren't serving and waiting, you can't claim to be converted. That's pretty powerful stuff there. If you're not serving and waiting, you can't make a claim that you're a Jesus follower. But when you are a Christ follower, you know what? Things like you feel joy in a worship service like this, don't you? You love to gather with others who are serving and waiting because we're together doing that same thing. Because when you've turned from all other rescuers to serve Jesus, there's something very satisfying. There's something very thrilling about praising God. Joy wells up in you. Your heart beats a little faster. Your hope is renewed. Because as you worship, you recognize all over again that everything else is an idol. And you remember that once again that you belong to the only living Lord. You remember that no matter what the world says, no matter how chaotic the culture, how twisted the values, how painful your problems, you look to Jesus. And you serve the one who saved you from your hopeless condition. 
and you wait for the one who is returning to rescue you from the coming wrath. Now the band is going to come and lead us in expressing that joy that I hope that you feel and that you can join me in in celebrating. But I want to tell you, it was four in the morning, 4 a.m. when Michael Malamed finished the Boston Marathon more than 20 hours after the race began. Very few were left to see him cross the finish line. You see, Mikhail has a form of muscular dystrophy, which meant that he didn't so much run the race as walk it. But he finished it. And explaining his accomplishment, Mikhail said this, in any marathon, you have to know why you're doing it. Because in the last mile, the marathon will ask you. (laughs) That's exactly right. Friends, we are on the last mile. People of God, as you worship, as you serve, as you live for Jesus, this world is going to ask you why. And the answer is, Jesus is coming. So Church of the Living God, let's stand together and sing with joy. Open up the heavens. We want to see you. Oh, 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 oh